So we are going to move into a time of guided silence together. This is a practice that we like to do to set ourselves up for listening to the Holy Spirit during our morning together. So I invite you this morning to position yourselves in the way that you feel most comfortable hearing from God. That could be closing your eyes, opening your hands. For some people, that's kneeling, whatever you guys feel comfortable with. So we are going to pray together and listen to the Holy Spirit together. Holy Spirit, come. I want you to notice how you come into this space this morning. Are you coming into this space weary? Insecure? Are you coming into this space full of joy? Are you feeling sorrowful? Are you feeling heavy or light this morning? Just take a moment and hand that over to God, however you come into this space. What would it take to see yourself as beloved exactly as you come today? Do you feel that you can trust that even insecure, even weary, even sorrowful and undone, that you are beloved? How does that feel to you? What does God say to you in that?
Holy Spirit, we thank you that your presence meets us exactly how we are, exactly how we feel, that we are your beloved regardless of how we feel, what we do, and our insecurity that you meet us, that you call us beloved. Amen. The scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 54, 1 through 2 and 4 through 5 in the NIV version. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Ooh, the volume. Now I have an extra mic. I'm going to be like real awkward about it. So my wife, Jessie, is a, amongst other things, a theater educator, incredible person, and a director. And she always helps me. One of the things she helps me do is what I'm, to not do what I'm doing now, which is to make reference to the process. She hates it. And yet here we are. My name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Vineyard, which is the name for this collection of folks at this place in time. Um, let's pray. Holy Spirit, you're awesome in both the modern and ancient sense of the word. Um, let's pray that um, you would uh, prepare all of our hearts to hear the word, and that also um, the words that I say will be those words. Amen. All right. I'm going to start. More process stuff. I won't tell you what I'm doing. It's a secret. <clears throat> so you may have noticed if you've been around that this is a sermon series. Uh, a group of sermons with the same topic. Um, for those of you who are here uh, for the first time in the series, special welcome. Um, you can go back and check out the other ones if you feel really moved, but it's okay if you're just here today. They don't build each other so much that you're missing out too much. Uh, the sermon series is, What Do I Love About the Church? And I remember when Jared asked me, he said, hey, we're going to do this series. Carl, can you preach on what do you love about the church? And I was like, oh, uh, it was a hard question for me, which is weird because I super love the church. In fact, that's the problem. I love the church so much. What do you love about the church doesn't make any sense to me as a question. It's like, like, what do you, what's so tasty about food? Or like, 
what's sonorous about music? Water. Why is it wet? Um, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. It really threw me for a while, and I had to really dig in because I, I just, oh, where do you start? What does that mean? Like, the church is the church. Do you, you don't. Um, so I prayed about it um, a lot, and, and uh, it came to me. Um, what, a, what, what do I love about the church? The best way, I think, to say it, the best metaphor picture for me to wrap my head around is I love the church because the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. In order to unpack that simple thing, there's two concepts that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, one sort of briefly, and the other we'll spend a little more time on. Um, so when I say the church is the bride of Christ, who or what is that? What is a church? And we're just going to answer that in three minutes. Uh, can I have my slide? Yay! Big C church and little c church. So preachers will sometimes use this big C, little c church language. Um, we used to just say Catholic church, uh, but that got a little awkward several hundred years ago. So we use big C and little c now a lot. Tori, when she preached a few weeks ago, um, used this, this language and made reference to it. So the big C church is the church universal and historical. It's all the churches that there are in the world everywhere, and also every church that has ever been, and also every church that ever will be. All of the churches, says is. Okay? And all of the churches that make up the big C church are little c churches. The little C church is an expression in space and time of the big C church. And every little church is a group of people at a place and time. So you are now, right now, in this place and time, the little C church that is an expression of the big C church. So in some ways, you are the big C church, but you're just not all of the big C church. Um, that is what we're talking about today. So... Each of you individual people is a unique and wonderful and vital part of this little church, which is itself a vital and unique and united part of the big C church. Um, that's that in just a few minutes. And I, I, it was very quick for a full ecclesiology, but uh, if it got weird for you in terms of space-time and all that, I'm sorry about that. I'm a Doctor Who guy, so deal with it, I guess I... Or if you have questions, if it was genuinely like, Carl, what was that all about? Come and see me after. Hopefully you have enough of the concept of Big C Church that we can move on. So um, the second piece here is the Bride of Christ thing. And when I'm talking now from here on with Bride of Christ, that will always be the Big C Church. No one Little C Church is the Little Bride. Uh, Christ is not married to many churches. He's married to one church, the Big C Church, Okay. Um, and I want to now dive into some scripture to talk about um, some different slices on what this bride of Christ, um, God is the husband of his people thing. So all of the following scriptures are from the NIV, uh, but not all scripture in the sermon will be, so keep track at home. Um, the first piece I want to make reference to is the piece 
that uh, Rachel read in Isaiah, from Isaiah 54. Isaiah is like the battle rap poet of the Old Testament. I freaking love Isaiah so much. I would love to just teach on this passage at some time, but it takes some careful unpacking. Um, so instead, we're just going to take a little piece from it. In fact, I'm not going to even read the whole slice that Rachel did. Um, this text is focusing on um, God's redeeming and saving love, uh, a husband who redeems, and I'll talk about that. So, do not be afraid. Um, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. To understand the passage, you need to put yourself in the mindset, the framework of an ancient woman, right? In a, a patriarchal society where you don't get to own things or control things. So if you're an unmarried young lady, you're just in your father's house, you have nothing, you don't have a lot of prospect. And if you're widowed, you've just lost everything. In fact, all of your property will probably go to some other male relative. You are out on the streets. Um, this is a desolate place to be. Um, but God, who Isaiah takes the time to name, he just wants to make it really clear who we're talking about. God, you know, your maker, the Lord Almighty, the Holy One of Israel. Just so we're clear who we're talking about here. This is the God, okay? Is your husband. He is your husband, and he is your redeemer. Um, reading this with Jesse, she, she draw, drew out for me the husband concept. And think about, in an agrarian community, husbanding. Does, is, do, you, do you know the term husbanding? This is like you taking care of animals is husbanding, right? And there's a sense of nurture here, drawing out what in um, like a Western context, we don't always think of husbands as nurturers, but like if you get a book on animal husbandry, it's about like sick animals and how to take care of them. So this is drawing on this nurture and care piece. The other piece here is the redeemer. There's a concept of a kinsman redeemer within the Jewish community. This is like, hey, if you husband does die, instead of letting you die in poverty, um, some relative of your husband should come along and marry you and take care of you and like help you retain your property <laughs> and things like that. So the idea here is that, that God is your redeemer in this sense, your husband and redeemer. All right, moving to the Gospels. We have a passage where John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus. <clears throat> John is the prophet that came right before Jesus, excuse me, <clears throat> to make ready the way. The text here focuses on that the people of God, the bride of Christ, the big C church, belong to the Messiah, not to anybody else. John 3, 27 through 30. To this, John replied, A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. We must become greater I'm, he, excuse me, he must become greater, I must become less. 
So John the Baptist identifies himself here as friend of the groom. We don't really have that in weddings these days. We just call it best man. Um, and I love the picture. I think it's sad in many ways uh, how much weddings have lost some of the meaning of the roles, what it is to be a, a, a maid of honor or a best man. Like, if you had a real job, I think it's great when people lean into it. But the job here is waiting and watching and listening. John the Baptist points out he is listening for Christ to come. And when Christ comes, he's overjoyed. He's so happy. He's here. I'm here with the bride. We're waiting. The bridegroom is here. This is wonderful. Let me get you guys connected. Let's get you married. Um, so that's the sense of uh, the excitement and anticipation of this bride that is for the bridegroom and not, not for the best man, which makes sense. We all we understand that. Best man is not just like you rotate one to the side if the groom doesn't show. That's not, how, that's not how that works. A lot of John's sentiment here in the gospel is echoed by Paul in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 through 3. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may be somehow led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I think here Paul is again putting himself in the place of a best man. Um, he's writing this letter. He's not a, a part of this church community. He's like, hey, I'm here to like make sure you get connected to Christ and stay with Christ. And I'm just a little bit worried. You're, you're pure and devoted, but you're getting a little confused, is what he's telling the Second Corinthians. You guys will listen to anybody who wanders in. Um, this is a problem. Uh, and uh, I think, too, I love that, that Paul, he spends two sentences on, like, hey, is it okay if I get a little, a little silly, a little weird with you here? Will you bear with me? This, interestingly, uh, Corinthians uh, is written before Ephesians, which I'm going to reference later. And I think Paul is in his thought developing this concept of this bridegroom concept a little bit, drawing on older scriptures as we see. But like, here's a funny thought. What about, what if Jesus is kind of like the bridegroom and the church is kind of the bride? It's a little silly, but bear with me. So I love that. Um, finally, I just, I had to include from some scripture from Revelation. Uh, I grew up very afraid of Revelation. It was like wacko book for wacko people. That's the way I was raised in, in a very... Uh, Baptists were wacko people enough for lots of other denominations, but um, we were nervous about it. And sort of the best case scenario was like, it's there, so we're just glad it's there. We don't need to read it. Um, but the more I have read it over the years uh, and been guided in it, I'm just, oh, I love digging into Revelation. The whole book is about encouragement and love for the church and, and, and about an excitement and exhortation for, for the days to come. It's amazing. Um, as long as you understand a metaphor, um, which is important. Revelation 19, uh, 6 through 8a. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, uh, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fresh linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear.
if you're going to think about the wedding, not just the bride and groom, but the wedding, you got to think about a stadium crowd. you got to think about that energy that goes beyond individual people into cheering into the, the mass power of tens of thousands of people together. And I love the idea of a wedding with that kind of jubilation in it. Um, the lamb and the bride. And I love the image of the fullness of the church that, and I'll talk more about this later, like when this marriage, this unity between the church and Jesus is going to be made fully complete in that moment, how the church has been given beautiful clothes to wear. So we have all of these slices on imagery about what it is to be the bride of Christ, useful to hold in the mind. I wanted to dive deeper, and I wanted to look for something that gave us a really sort of line-by-line portrait so we can really unpack this bride of Christ thing a little bit more. Um, and so I, my, the main text is from Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Does anybody know that passage? Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. It's a f- common one. I'm curious. It's okay. This is not like a test. I have triggered a bunch of you from Bible school. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> Pastor's mad. I won't. But... Uh, <laughs> Because once I do, you'll get it right away. Um, I didn't have Rachel read this because it can be a triggering passage, actually. This is a common wedding passage, or at least it used to be. We don't do it so much anymore uh, on account of the wives submit to your husband's part. uh, Has been used as something of a crowbar over the years for, for people to try to Put women in what they imagine their place is. Uh, I'm glad that we've moved away from that usage. Um, it's, it's a perfectly good scripture. It is beautiful and useful when exegeted and explored carefully. And so every teacher today has a hot take on the cool way to like deal with this passage. So I'm going to join in that tradition. <laughs> um, usually it's like, but don't forget, husbands love your wives. So there you go. Um, I think we can get a little more out of it than that. Um, In fact, what I want to do with this passage is preach it backwards to the way it's normally taught. We're not preaching about how to do marriage today. We're preaching about what it is for the church to be married to Jesus. So we're going to take this passage and look at it through that lens. Uh, I want us, this passage, to inform a perfect marriage. So... If you have a concept of marriage that is imperfect in your mind, you can put that aside for right now and try to imagine something that's really great. Maybe you're in a perfect marriage now. Good job. Or God bless you or good luck. Um, But we're going to use this passage to to make a mental picture of what a perfect marriage would be um, to draw on. Because unlike humans, uh, Christ can be perfect. Okay. Let me read it. Reading now from the message, because it is a beautiful uh, and useful translation for this passage. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. 
So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ does for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that's how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two. They become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself in loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. It's not hard to preach this backwards. You'll notice that Paul gets kind of like lost in the sauce a little bit. Like he himself can't talk, help but talk just about Jesus and the church. Much more than he'll like, oh yeah, and that's how husbands should love wives. But what he's really excited about here is the relationship between Jesus and the church. Um, so, okay, let's imagine this, this perfect husband. The husband here is courteously reverent. Um, I, I'm a big proponent of courtesy. Um, we wouldn't need to be polite if we could all read each other's minds because we would know what everyone's intentions are. But because we can't, we need to use courtesy, which is sort of societal rules about how to be careful about each other and kind. Courteously, reverent, reveres, he honors his wife. He provides leadership. Um, this part could feel a little bit alarming in a real marriage. We start to get some of this like, who, who's leading who here? Excuse me. What's going on? Because it's Jesus and the church, and not a real person. Maybe we can accept that for now in this imagination. He goes all out in love. A love marked by giving. There's so much text in the New Testament about the way Jesus pours himself out for us. He, he empties himself is what some of the texts say. God's love in Jesus, which is to say God's love, is a pouring and a giving and a giving. And because he's God, he can give and give with no end. That's the kind of love this husband has. His love makes his wife whole. We'll talk more about this in a little bit, but I, I think... That's not because of a lack in the wife. It's more about removing the things that are in the way of the wife feeling and being whole. Because the wife was created whole. And then things got in the way in some ways. His words evoke her beauty. 
Have you ever spoken to someone, either someone intimate or what's great for this is a child, and told them something great about them, something beautiful? And it was already true, but in the saying, it is evoked. It comes into a deeper and fuller meaning. They realize it. You see it in their eyes. Kids are often willing, little enough kids, to think that they're great. So when you tell them they're great, they can really enjoy it and show up for that. Grown-ups do not always believe that they're great. Even when you think of a narcissist, who the concept of a narcissist is like, oh, a person that thinks they're great. Narcissists feel empty. They're pursuing the feeling of greatness because of that. But his words, Christ's words, evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring out the best in her. All the things that are already there. All the things that are already true. And to get rid of all the things that are not. He dresses her in dazzling garments. Such a beautifully, again, evocative phrase. We have silk in this translation. I think, I didn't do the research, like, I don't know if they had silk available, which is why it's linen in Revelation, I think. Um, I don't know, uh, sequins, maybe, today? Like, whatever would be most appropriate for the most dazzling. He is one flesh with his wife. I like that Paul here is referring all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis Genesis 2.24, the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. But also, Paul in Corinthians, earlier, when he wrote this, says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And I think sometimes in the church, when we're looking for metaphors for the experience of what it is to be the church, we, 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 we choose tracks. There's the bride of Christ track, and quite frankly, people don't talk about it much because it's weird and a little awkward, which I'm into. We, or the body of Christ track, and that's where you're like, I'm the toe, and you're the ear, and we get really into that stuff. I think it's one metaphor. I think that Paul is intentionally drawing on the fact that husband and wife are one flesh, a metaphor also, um, and thinking of this all as one piece, a deeply united, just as husband and wife are united, just as Jesus and the church are united, we are the body of Christ in that way. Deeply intimate. So, I want to go back through some of the stuff we've taken and, and do another, a little imagination experience. If you're willing to close your eyes or whatever it takes for you to get into an imaginative space, I'm going to read through some of these things again. I want you to try to really feel in your heart. We, the church, are this bride. So as I read this next set of, of things, this is you. All right. Close your eyes. Regardless of your gender, regardless of your relationship status, your history with marriage, just for now, allow yourself to know we here are the bride of Christ. And if it feels a little embarrassing, I think you're doing it right. Because this is a lot of intimate attention. There's a reason that we have a blushing bride. We are the bride of Christ. And again, this is Jesus, not a perfect person. This is a perfect person, a perfect um, 
our beloved who's God. So it's okay. Our Jesus cherishes us. He leads us ever so gently, always with our consent. His love is poured out in his endless, endless giving of himself to us. He is always giving himself to us. He makes us whole. And in his love, all that is most true of each of us and us together, and those things that are true, those are our worth and our beauty. All of those things are manifest in God's love. And we are one with Jesus. You fully loved, fully known, fully unique, one with the bridegroom and with this little church, which is itself one with every church in every place that exists or ever will exist or ever existed. All of us, beloved, together with the bride. That's all true. We were, and you can open your eyes if you want to, or not. God made us and created us perfect and beautiful and holy. And when you're feeling any deficit in that, it's, it's not because you weren't made that way. It's because some things have gotten in the way. And so this is why I love the church. Because what could be more lovely than the church? The beloved of God made beautiful, revealed in its beauty. God's partner, Jesus' partner, by his grace. I love us church because he loved us and he gave himself up for us. We're going to begin transitioning into uh, ministry time and worship. Um, but I wanted to make space as we did that to acknowledge some thoughts and feelings that might have come up for you. Some other stuff might have come up for you or maybe nothing came up for you and that's all fine. The union between Jesus and the church, like the kingdom of God, um, is an in-between place. We sometimes say it's already and not yet. Some of you may have heard that language. Like, God already won. The kingdom has come, except for that not all the way, because everything's not perfect yet. Maybe you noticed. And so, if you're, you might be thinking, Carl, I've been to church. <laughs> It doesn't look so pretty to me. I don't feel like I look so pretty. I've been hurt in churches. 
like, there's a lot of problems. You're right. Because this marriage is started, and it's more than an engagement. It's not just a promise. It's happening, but it's not happened. The full wedding, the full union is yet to come. And so if you've experienced a pain in a little c church, I want to acknowledge that. Maybe you have experienced pain in this church. Maybe I hurt you personally. (laughs) Um, That's because these churches are made of people who are not Jesus. And uh, they're not fully united with God. And I want to say, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you've been through at the church. I want to say that. uh, If it was me personally, for sure, I'm sorry. (laughs) Maybe we could talk about it if it would be helpful sometime. But I also want to stand in if another pastor, leader, another person at church has hurt you and say on their behalf, because I believe it's okay in God for me to say this, I'm sorry for them too. Even if they aren't willing, able, capable, or no, no, I think it's okay for me to say sorry because I know that God doesn't want you to be hurt in church. If you're carrying wounds from church stuff today, stuff that's in the way of realizing this bride of Christ thing I've been talking about, um, I would like for you to get prayer for today. Can you guys stand? And let's get the prayer team forward. Get the band up here. There's going to be some people who are trained to pray uh, in the room. And uh, they're people that we just, we went through and, and uh, help make prayer a real safe spot uh, for you to talk. But if you feel more comfortable with somebody that you know who's beside you, you could ask them too. They'll probably say yes. Um, but if you have some church wounding, today is a good day to receive some healing from that. Um, it may be also that you as a person struggle to find yourself beloved and beautiful. I say that it does not resonate with you. You don't see that. And I want to say that you're not seeing yourself as God sees you. And that's okay. God sees how beautiful you are. I know this. You are not. um, And some of us learned this in the church. You weren't born like worthless and then God threw you a bone. That's not how it works. You were born full of God's glory. You were born unique and incredible, imbued with goodness by God's grace. That's how you were born. You cannot be marred by anything that you've been through in this life. And so anything that stands between you and feeling and being, beloved, look, we also do stupid things. We wander off the path. We make mistakes. That is stuff that can and will be wiped away by God's grace. And so today, if you're in the place of not feeling like the bride, if it's because of struggle to feel beautiful and to feel beloved, come and get prayer for that, that God would share a little slice of how he feels about you. He loves you so much, it can knock you on your butt. Or if there's something in the way you're living your life that is messing up some of what God has made and that you know. This is not a a call of shame. I don't believe that God shames. I believe that God um, 
exhorts and encourages you. And you will know, you know, I can, this is the thing I don't want it in my life. You can come and get prayer to make a change from that. Journeying, journeying towards all of this understanding about what it is to be beautiful is a lifelong journey. And so there's room to keep doing this. But if you want a little download, a little deposit, I think maybe God has that for you today. Rachel, what else do you want to share with us this morning? Yeah, um, just looking at all of you. I know I was supposed to have my eyes closed, but I couldn't help just looking at all of you <laughs> and just seeing how, how beautiful all of you are to me, to each other. That's just such a wonderful gift to have one another. Um, there were two things that came to mind as I was listening to Carl. Um, what are the true things about yourself that you need God to remind you of? That would be a good thing to think about right now during worship and also as you go into your week. What are the things that are true about you that you need reminded of by God? And then the second thing I was thinking about was this, this attention and this intimacy is the thing that each of us desperately want in our lives. It's something that we all deeply, deeply need and desire, but it's also the thing that we're the absolute most terrified of. And I want to challenge you, like what, what would it take to allow yourself to be seen in this way? And that could either be from God or it can be from other people. It could be within this community. It could be within your family. What would it take for you to allow yourself to be seen in this way? And what does it feel like to know that this is available to you? That you don't have to do anything to, to get to this place of beloved, to get to this place of intimacy and, and being seen. But that, that's already something that is available to you. Um, so, and, and going on top of that, like what Carl was saying, that this can sometimes feel like weirdly embarrassing to be seen in that way. Um, so like, why is that for you personally? Why does it feel that way to you? So if any of those things feel relevant to you, please get prayer. I would love to pray for you. Grab somebody you feel comfortable with. You're so loved.